Okay, question was, which distribution gives the number of electrons with a certain energy? The answer is the Fermi-Dirac distribution. Surprisingly, some people thought it was Maxwell-Boltzmann. Uh, student questions. I was confused as to why alpha was replaced by the chemical potential, or more specifically, why it is customary to do so. So, it's customary to just define the chemical potential to be alpha over KBT. And you can blame Gibbs. He invented this name. His idea was that if you have a bunch of stuff and there's a higher concentration here, it will diffuse over there. So it acts like there is a great some kind of force, although it's just diffusion. So maybe he should have called it diffusion potential. So, <coughs> but maybe it's a better name than alpha. You have to give him that. Uh, does Bose, does the Bose-Einstein distribution only apply to particles that are near absolute zero? Uh, nope. It applies to bosons. So we're going to see that it applies to bosons just after the Big Bang, which is very hot. In thermo, we use internal energy U instead of E. Is E meant to be just the internal energy or the total energy? So it's the internal energy of the solid that we're looking at. So it's the kinetic and potential energy of all the particles inside the solid, not including stuff outside the solid or gas. I'm a little confused about the energy versus number of particles graph regarding Fermi-Dirac distribution where it talks about cutoff relating to temperature. I don't understand the sudden drop in energy in the relation to temperature. So the sudden drop is in the number, occupation number, not in the energy. It's occupation number versus energy. At zero temperature, it's sharp. And as we go up in temperature, it smooths out. Will we ever be using the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution or just the Fermi-Dirac Bose-Einstein? Since it's quantum mechanics, we won't need Maxwell-Boltzmann, except that in the limit of high energies, they all reduce to the same thing, which is to say at high energies, the quantum, quantum behavior gets washed out and we just see classical behavior. Under what physical situation should a system be treated as a classically distinguishable particles instead of fermions or bosons? It's sort of the same question. So when we go to high energies, the occupation numbers become very small, exponentially small. So that means there's probably only one particle at most. If the, ex if the probability of a finding a particle in a particular state is 10 to the minus 3, <coughs> then there probably aren't two particles there. There's probably most likely zero, and maybe if you're lucky, one. And if there's just one, then you can't really tell if it's a distinguishable particle or an identi identical because there's nothing for it to be identical with. So they all reduce to the same formula. Under what physicals? We just did that one. What do the constraints in N and E mean for distinguishable particles? I mean that you're requiring the total number of particles and the total internal energy to be those values, just like for any other particles. Okay. So last time we got up to fermions, and now we have to do bosons. So for identical bosons, Oops. For identical bosons, 
we're doing the same thing. We take the log of the number of uh, states and add our Lagrange multiplier constraints, which enforce that the total number and total internal energy are fixed. So plugging in uh, what we had for the total number of states for bosons. That's a one. And taking the log of it, there was uh, the number of particles in the state plus the degeneracy minus one factorial on top. So we get a positive log from that. And then we divide it by all possible interchanges of the particles. So there's a minus log n factorial, and we divide it by interchanging the partitions. So there's a dn minus 1 factorial that gets a minus log. And then there's our Lagrange multiplier constraints. There's the constraint on the total number and the constraint on the total energy. So when the number of particles in the state is much bigger than one, then we can use uh, the Stirling approximation. So we get the thing inside, the thing that has a factorial inside the logarithm comes outside at times the logarithm of that same thing. And then we have to subtract that thing itself. Same thing for the log n sub n factorial. Then we get a plus n sub n because there was a minus sign out front. We don't have to worry about this last term because it doesn't have any n sub n dependence. We're going to take a derivative with respect to n sub n because we're trying to find the maximum. And then our constraint alpha is the number constraint, so we get an n sub n. Beta is the energy constraint, so we get en n sub n. And then there's some terms outside the sum branch multipliers. So if we differentiate with respect to the <coughs> occupation number in a particular state, <coughs> we get a, a log from here, a log from here, we get an alpha from there and a beta times the energy of that state from there. And we're going to set that to zero so that we get a maximum. And so if we solve for n sub n, So this minus 1 is coming from here. 
after exponentiating. And we're going to drop this minus 1, usually. Because <coughs> usually the degeneracy is like n squared. And most of the time, the n is much bigger than 1. So in all of these cases, we need to actually calculate what alpha and beta are because we haven't actually... So we put in alpha and beta because the problem was too hard. We wanted to maximize something subject to a constraint. So we made it a function of two more variables. But we still have to ensure that it's a maximum as a function of those, those variables. Uh, but that will be the case if it satisfies the constraint. So you can solve for alpha and beta by imposing the constraint then, now that we have what n sub n is in terms of alpha and beta. So n sub n is a function of alpha and beta. And if we sum over everything, we have to get the total number. And if we sum over them weighted by the energy, we have to get the total energy. So to do the sum, we need to know what the degeneracies are and the energies of the levels are. So this is another reason why we spend all that time worrying about what degeneracies, what the degeneracies of the states that we were finding when we solved some of our early problems. So let's do it for an ideal gas. find alpha and beta. So that's a bunch of non-interacting particles. I'll have some mass m and we'll put them in a box so that life is easy. Because we've solved that problem how many times now? I forget a lot of times. It's still the same answer. The energy is the momentum squared. Momentum is h bar k or twice the mass. Some k is quantized in terms of some integers that depend on the size of the box. k depends on the size of the box in each direction. It's a big box. We'll approximate by a continuum. Because then the spacings between the different k's is very small. So how many states are there per unit volume? Remember we divided up k space into each, we can think of each state as being associated with a little cell of volume pi cubed over v. How many states are there for each one of those cells? So for electrons, there were two. There was spin up and spin down. In general, there's 2s plus 1. So that's how many spin states there are if there's spin s. 
So in the first octant, since we only need uh, positive integers n, we can take a shell of thickness dk, the number of states with that energy in that shell. So the area of the octant is 1 8 to 4 pi k squared. The thickness is dk. And each state takes up the volume pi cubed over b. So dividing by that, we'll get the number of states. And we have to put it 2s <coughs> plus 1, because there's 2s plus 1 possible spin orientations. So it's just like what we did for the free electron gas, but now we've generalized to arbitrary spin. So if we have distinguishable particles, we know that uh, n is the total number is the sum over the degeneracy times e to the minus alpha of minus beta en. And we just worked out the degeneracy. <coughs> so our sum is actually integral in this case. energy is momentum squared over twice the mass. And that's an integral that you can look up in a t table. The e to the minus alpha is just a constant, so it comes out. And you get a 3 halves power. So if we solve for e to the minus alpha, <coughs> get that unenlightening expression. You can do the same thing for the energy. The only difference is we have to weight it by the energy of each state. So there's an h bar squared, k squared over 2m for that energy. And we can also look that one up in a table. e to the minus alpha comes out. And cleverly, we already know what e to the minus alpha is. So we can just plug that in. And you see there's lots of cancellations. We get 3 halves n over beta. 
So if we take the average energy, which is the total energy, total internal energy divided by n, that's three halves, one over beta. And from StatMech class, you know what that's supposed to be. In three dimensions, that should be three halves kBT, where kB is the Boltzmann constant. So, obviously, if, if those StatMech guys didn't make a mistake, that tells us what beta has to be. Beta is 1 over kBT. Because we certainly didn't make a mistake. You guys were watching every step. And uh, as I mentioned, Gibbs liked this idea of a chemical potential to describe diffusion. So we'll call alpha the chemical potential to a factor. So we'll define the chemical potential, which could, is probably a function of temperature, to be minus alpha kBT. So we can write e to the minus alpha plus beta e Call the energy of the individual state epsilon, not the total energy. So, because of this definition, each term has a 1 over kBT, so that's nice. So, we get energy minus chemi chemical potential over kBT up in the exponential. Now, it, this would work for other types of degeneracies, so it's useful to divide out by the degeneracy factor, since it's always just proportional to the degeneracy. That will give us the most probable number of particles in a particular state not in all the degenerate states, but one of those degenerate states. That's the state with energy epsilon. So for distinguishable particles, we get E to the minus chemical potential, epsilon minus chemical potential over kBT. That's Maxwell-Boltzmann. That's for classically distinguishable particles. Now if we use the same definition for chemical potential and beta, then for fermions, 
we get 1 over an exponential energy minus chemical potential over kBT plus 1. That's for identical fermions. And for bosons. No, it's exponential plus one. For bosons, we get the same exponential, but now minus one. It's called Bose-Einstein. It's for identical bosons. So when the energy minus the chemical potential over KBT is much bigger than 1, those exponentials in the denominators are much bigger than these guys. So these become the same, and they're the same as that. So the real distributions, which are either Fermi-Dirac or Bose-Einstein, they go to Maxwell-Boltzmann that condition is satisfied. Which makes sense because when this is very big, these the most probable number is very small. So if you have zero or one particles, you can't tell if they're fermions, bosons, or distinguishable particles in the statistical sense. You could still measure their spins. So if we look at the Fermi-Dirac distribution, as the temperature goes to zero, it gets very simple. E to the energy minus uh, chemical potential over KBT. If the temperature is going to zero, that will either go to zero or infinity. If the energy is less than the chemical potential, then this is a negative number up here, so it goes to zero when t goes to infinity. If the energy is bigger than the chemical potential, then this is a positive number, so it goes to infinity. So that means the most probable number goes to 1 or 0. Which means that all the states are filled up to energy mu of zero. So this sounds familiar. This was our free electron gas story. We just filled up all the energy states up to the maximum, depending on the number of electrons we had. So the chemical potential at zero is what we called the Fermi energy. And remember we had some hand-waving argument of why this would be a good approximation at low temperatures. Now we can see exactly what the deviation is from that low temperature approximation. So the deviation is this. Instead of being a sharp 
distribution, it smooths out as the temperature goes up. So in general, for identical bosons and fermions, um, we can write the total number using the non-relativistic energy, momentum squared over twice the mass. The total number should be number of spin states, volume over 2 pi squared, and an integral k squared dk, integrating over momentum space. And then there's the distribution. And then we have a plus or minus one. Plus for Fermi-Dirac, minus for Bose-Einstein. total internal energy is the same integral, but it's k to the fourth because we weight by h bar squared over 2m. So we weight the integral by the energy of each level or each state. Fermion, you get this extra factor up front. 
So this crazy pi squared over 30 is coming from Riemann zeta functions. Dimensionally, it had to go like temperature to the fourth. Uh, and uh, there's a factor of 7 eighths from this crazy factor here. When you take a cosmology course, you'll see the 7 eighths. You have to wait to grasp to see the 7 eighths. But now you'll know, they won't tell you in cosmology where it came from. It came from there. So, what Einstein was telling us is that the energy density controls the expansion rate. The bigger the energy density, the more it wants to expand. And so, depending on the energy density at the time of uh, the, the nuclei reform, that expansion will be faster or slower depending on that energy density. And so you can calculate the abundance of helium, deuterium, and lithium because you make these protons and neutrons, but neutrons decay in 15 minutes, roughly. So you have 15 minutes to assemble them into these nuclei. If you don't do it in the first 15 minutes after the Big Bang, the neutrons will decay and you won't have any of these guys. But uh, the rate of this formation depends on how fast the universe is expanding. So you have a very sensitive measure of the energy density right after the Big Bang. So according to their calculations, uh, that tells us that the number of neutrinos is 3 plus or minus 0.1 because we know everything else at around the energies that are relevant to all the particles, but at the time they didn't know how many neutrinos there were. This was done in the 70s and 80s. And in the 90s, there was this experiment left in Geneva at CERN, and by measuring decay properties of the Z boson, they could measure exactly how many neutrinos there were, even without measuring, without detecting the neutrinos. From the line shape, they can extract how many neutrinos there are. Cosmology agrees with the experiment, all based on quantum statmet. Now you're incredibly impressed, or sleepy, or both. Save that. Okay. Another application is the black body spectrum. Oops. You should have heard about this in your previous quantum course. Yes? This was the reason quantum mechanics got developed. Because no one could understand the black body spectrum. So, usually you write energies in terms of, a, <coughs> some people write energies in terms of a h times the frequency. That's how Planck did it. Uh, but nowadays we like to use h bar times an angular frequency. And the wave number, 2 pi over the wavelength, is the angular frequency over the speed of light. Now we're talking about electromagnetic spectrum, so it's really photons. So photons have two spin states. Which violates our formula. We said there was two s plus one states, but uh, it's because it's relativistic. So two s plus one is for non-relativistic guys. So that's another thing you have to take in grad school. But w we know there's two polarizations. 
and we also know the number of photons is not conserved. How do we know that? Because I can turn on a light switch and make photons. That's why. So, to take account of that, we'll set alpha equal to zero, so there's no constraint. There's no constraint on the total number of photons. So we're setting the Lagrange multiplier to zero from the start. And we know the photons are bosons, so we know the number, the occupation number should go like the degeneracy over uh, an exponential of the energy over KBT, because we can, setting alpha to zero is the same as setting mu to zero. So putting in the degeneracy, we just worked this out. So this is just the same formula. And now I'm going to write the energy in terms of an angular frequency. So the energy is h bar omega over kBT. So let me call this one n omega. Then we can work out the energy density as well. So again, I'm just using the formulas we had before and setting the energy epsilon equal to h bar omega. Now, unfortunately for us, when they measured the black body spectrum, they wrote it as a density in wavelength, not energy. So we have to convert. And because there's a omega is 1 over lambda, there's a tricky Jacobian. So we can write it this way. We'll call it rho bar so we don't get confused when it's a function of wavelength. We're putting in absolute values because the Jacobian would have a negative. If you naively did the Jacobian, you'd get a minus sign because of 1 over lambda. So that means rho bar of lambda is rho of omega. Absolute value of d omega d lambda. So our omega cubed gets converted to a 1 over lambda cubed. And we get a 1 over lambda squared from our Jacobian factor. And if we write omega in terms of lambda, we get a 1 over lambda kBT. So in the end, we get a 1 over lambda to the fifth. So it's just a funny way of rewriting the Bose-Einstein distribution in wave number space, or wavelength space. So given that distribution, we can find where the maximum 
what's the most likely wavelength for a given temperature. So we just maximize that function and what you'll get is a transcendental equation. You can see that because you have an exponential dependence on the wavelength. So you can solve it numerically write it in terms of the thing in the exponential hc over kbt the maximum is at 4.966 it's close to 5 because of this lambda to the fifth if you uh, check into the details so that tells us that lambda max is 2 pi h bar c over 4.966 KB 1 over T. Putting in the numbers, you get 2.897 times 10 to the minus 3 meter Kelvin over temperature. And that was discovered empirically. And you guys know the name, right? Means displacement law. hard to write in the corner here. So another triumph, an early triumph of quantum mechanics before your very eyes. How exactly was the, what is this in the empirical data? Um, this many decimal places, I believe, but that's why the, but uh, now, I don't know how well it's measured now. Presumably, many more decimal places. So here's, oh my god. <laughs> well, I have a beautiful picture on my screen. Can you just turn your screen around? Um, you have to be at exactly the right angle, though, because it's an LCD. Okay. So one person will be able to see this beautiful picture. Maybe. So. There's nice Boltzmann distribution. It goes like this. Not a Boltzmann distribution, Planck distribution. And I did it for different temperatures, and then I colored them by the color that you would see. So there's a nice light blue color here, which corresponds to 8,000 degrees Kelvin. And then down here, there's a. Is that at the right angle for you to see? I can see it. So it goes from a nice blue color. I want a new projector. A nice blue color down here to a reddish color. That's not. It's reddish down here. And that's at 4,000 degrees Kelvin. There's colored arrows going from this guy to the lines here. You'll have to download the slides if you want to see it. So the point of this is uh, that. Hmm. Oh, and the sun is around 6,000 degrees. It's in the middle. And that one's actually hard to see because around 6,000 degrees, it looks kind of white. Why is that? Because it goes uniformly over the range from, this is the visible range, blue to red. This is a bright red line here. This, is, this wavelength corresponds to red. This corresponds to blue. So this is the visible range. So at 8,000 degrees, the distribution is peaked up here. So it's peaked toward the blue. At 4,000 degrees, it's peaked down here. So it's peaked toward the red. 6,000 degrees, it's kind of, the peak is sort of in the middle, so it looks white. 
Why, why does it look white? What's the magic of that? Well, yeah, but our eyes evolved looking at sunlight, so it's white because we evolved in that light, if you see what I mean. So, yes, so the, the, these are the rough temperatures of stars, of the surface of a star. The center of a star is millions of degrees, but the surface is only thousands of degrees. And that gives us our nice colored stars. I like that. That was a beautiful picture. I wasted a lot of time on that, guys. Okay. Another application is the cosmic microwave background radiation. So here's uh, some experimental data. If you've seen, you've probably seen this picture before. You know that it doesn't look like this. Um, so here's the Planck distribution. Here's the data looking at the microwave background radiation in the universe. And these dots are like 100 or 1,000 times bigger than the actual error bars, just so you can see where they are. So the micro cosmic microwave background radiation is the most accurately measured black body distribution ever. And it also exactly fits on the Planck distribution. Now, the temperature of it now is 2.7 degrees Kelvin. But as you run the universe backwards, that te corresponding temperature goes up as the universe shrinks. So that's the remnant of the Big Bang. guys were the ones who measured it first. <laughs> what? His teeth aren't so yellow. <laughs> Champagne is also, well, Champagne is close. So they got the Nobel Prize in 2006 for measuring that first. Well, so what they got the prize for was not measuring this, because that was known. I mean, they measured it better than anyone had measured it before, but they got uh, for measuring these little fluctuations, these are the seeds of galaxies. That's what they got the prize for. We have five minutes to do our last application. So let's go back to uh, regular non-relativistic bosons. So it must be the case that the most probable number of bosons at a particular energy is bigger than zero. If you find a negative number of bosons go collect your Nobel Prize. Um, so that means that this exponential must be bigger than one. That means the energy minus the chemical potential must be bigger than zero. Which means that for any allowed energy, the energy level must be bigger than the chemical potential. Easy so far, right? If we have three particles, then the energy is momentum squared over twice the mass, which is a positive number, goes down to zero. So that means for bosons, the chemical potential must be less than zero, or something, something goes wrong. Now, suppose we have uh, some helium, let's say. So we have a fixed number of atoms and a fixed volume, and just vary the temperature. So put it in the refrigerator. 
So here's our expression for the number density. And this is this integral is fixed, but we're changing what t is. So as t goes down, it has to be balanced by the thing up here, thing over t, uh, also has to go down by the same factor. Otherwise, the integral won't stay the same. And because of this minus sign here, this is going down, that means the chemical potential has to go up. So chemical potential is, as the temperature goes down, is monotonically increasing. But it's, it has to be less than zero. So that means something funny can happen. If we get to a temperature where the chemical potential vanishes, then something strange is going to happen. Here's what happens. We cool down helium close to absolute zero. Uh, you find that if you put it in a jar like this, it will just flow up the sides of the jar. So it flows without resistance. It flows up and then down, and will drip down here. If you put it in a jar with a narrow mouth, it will just make a jet. Because the flow is, there's enough flow that it makes a jet fly up in the air and fall down again. And if you rotate the jar, you get little quantized vortices. Rena Zeev studies uh, these. So it's pretty cool. It's called the superfluid, or Bose-Einstein condensate. So we can estimate uh, where this should happen, because we know what this integral is. And we'll just set the chem at the critical temperature, the chemical potential vanishes. And so we can calculate critical, this should say Tc. We can calculate the critical temperature in terms of the number density. So we'll rescale, if you rescale the integral in terms of a new variable x, you get this integral, and again, you get the gamma function and the theta function. You just have to plug in a numerical value of this guy, because it's a, it's a fractional one instead of an integer one. And so, but you get some formula for critical temperature in terms of number density. So if we plug in for helium-4, the number density, divide by the mass per atom. I mean, this is the density. Divide by the mass per atom gives us the number density. And then plug that into here, you get the critical temperature <coughs> 3 Kelvin. Experimentally, it's 2 Kelvin. And you might think that's pretty lousy. But actually, it's amazingly good because we assumed that there was no interactions between the helium atoms, but actually uh, there's lots of interactions if you have liquid helium. I mean, they're bouncing against each other. So, uh, in addition to the original Nobel Prize for superfluids, these guys got a Nobel Prize in 2001. They were able to take a dilute gas of rubidium atoms and make a Bose condensate. So in this case, because it's a gas, there's very uh, few interactions are small. So it's more like the calculation we did, and the agreement with theory is much better. So what they did is this is the cartoon of what they did. They made the gas condense. So we have a gas of atoms, but a fraction of those atoms all go into the lowest energy state. That's what happens in the Bose condensate. So they're all in the identical low e lowest energy state. 
and then they release the trap and measure how the distribution changes. They can't actually measure how, they can't follow the actual velocities in each case, so they take pictures at different times, repeating the same setup, and then take a picture of the distribution at different times after they release it. So you see how they, uh, there's a bunch of guys, all these guys here fly out, but these guys hang around for a while because they're in this lowest energy state, zero, well, almost zero momentum. Any questions? Yeah? Uh, is Bose-Einstein condensate, is that like a distinct state of matter from solid liquid? Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the superfluid state. So I want it, it's a type of fluid, but it's a fluid without resistance. So I don't know if you want to call it a new one. But it's the same, this is the same thing that they're looking for at the LHC, actually. The Higgs boson is also supposed to be in a Bose-Einstein condensate. And that's supposed to provide the masses of all the particles that we know. That's another subject for graduate school. Okay, so there's going to be a review session on Friday at 3 o'clock in room 140, which I think is down there somewhere. I uh, posted solutions up to problem set 5. Hopefully we'll get problem set 6 before Friday. Will the test only cover chapter 4? Just chapter 4.